Let's reopen our Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and read the rest of the charges that the Lord God Almighty has against our race. That leads him to charge us all with death, beginning with the first sin in the Garden of Eden, and will result in the second death in the lake of fire, which is the second death. We have covered the crimes in verse 29 of unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness. We come to the fifth one in the list, maliciousness. It's having malice in your heart, the desire to injure another person, active ill will or hatred towards someone. The Bible would also use words, and we're going to run into a couple here in this passage, of malignity, hatred, envy, despiteful, holding grudges and bitterness. If you ever think about getting even with another person for a wrong, then you have maliciousness in you. The, the earth has been malicious. The Bible describes maliciousness. It's bitterness. It's holding a grudge. It's hating. It's the desire for revenge that you have toward another person. Such a spirit is entirely contrary to the Christian religion. Harboring hatred or planning revenge in your heart is a violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. The human race is condemned. They're full of malice. They abort babies that never did anything to those who kill them. They lie and steal from parents. They're malicious. Young men defraud virgins of their virginity. They're malicious. They slander or whisper against other people when they're not around and say things to detract from their character and make them less of a person. They're malicious. They defraud spouses sexually by not giving your spouse all they can handle. That is defrauding according to the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. It's malicious for a spouse to be that cruel towards someone they have married and promised to love for the duration of their life. Christians should be loving, merciful, tender-hearted, the opposite of being malicious. Right. Envy and strife in our hearts, the Bible tells us in James chapter 3, is from the devil. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is from beneath. It is earthly, sensual, and devilish. If you have bitter envying or strife in your heart, which is words to describe maliciousness. Let's keep moving in Romans chapter 1 and verse 29. Examine yourself. Do you hold any malicious feelings or thoughts toward anyone? Get rid of them. Amen. Let us be tender-hearted, gentle, kind, merciful, loving toward others, forgiving. It goes on to say, full of. It's as if the Holy Spirit is telling us, being filled with all, the first four words of the verse are not sufficient. So here in the middle of the 29th verse, in the middle of the list of 23, I want to get the words across again, full of. The world's full of it. It should be the world's full of them. 23 sins. Being filled with all. And here, full of. You think Paul went too far to repeat this again? You err, not knowing the depravity of mankind in the way the Bible describes it. You can read in other places that they are full of wickedness. But here, it starts off with full of envy. Envy is when you have a hostile feeling towards someone else because they 
are superior to you in some way, or they have something that is better than what you have. It's active evil or harm or mischief toward another person. It's the feeling of being mortified or ill will occasioned by contemplating their superior advantages that they possess. It's envy. You're jealous. You're mad. It's not fair. You resent them. You hate them because they're able to do something better than you or they have something better than what you have. Bible terms are like malignity and bitterness, emulation and strife. Emulation is not in this chapter, but emulation is a Bible word. Emulation is the desire to equal or exceed another person in anything. It's excessive competitiveness. It's competitive, competitiveness in things where you shouldn't be competitive. Or you're being competitive in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. The Bible says to covet earnestly the best gifts. Paul said he labored more abundantly than they all. But Paul didn't labor more abundantly than the other apostles to get himself a name. He labored more abundantly than the other apostles to give the Lord a name. Because of God's grace in his life. Because he said, when he said the words, I labored more abundantly than they all, he said, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's emula- But emulation is part of envy. Because you resent the superior advantage of another, so you are bent on equaling or exceeding them in some capacity or measure. Not because you desire righteousness for God's glory, but because you're proud and resent what they have. Bitterness and jealousy and grudges are often signs of this sin as well. The human race is condemned. The Bible itself describes from the very beginning the envy of Cain. Was Cain envious? Cain envied Abel because Abel's gifts were accepted by God and Abel was accepted by God because his gifts were accepted. He killed his brother. Envy can lead you to do horrible things. The Bible says that anger and wrath are heavy. But who can stand before envy? Envy will eat you alive from the inside out. It becomes your master. This person that you resent can now controls you. Because even when you're in bed at night, you are thinking about what that other person has that you don't have. Envy. Who can stand before envy? It'll eat you up and ruin your life. We want to hate it. Look at Joseph's brothers. We're talking about the family of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. The 10 of them, the 10 older brothers of Joseph hated him. And the Bible tells us why. They envied him. Because his father loved him. His father loved him for good reason. He was better than they were. But they envied him. And they would have killed him if it hadn't been for a brother that intervened by God's grace to preserve his life. How about King Saul? He was full of envy toward David. When he heard the song, on his way back from a battle against the Philistines, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Why didn't he rejoice and give David a promotion? Because he had a man who could kill ten thousand Philistines as opposed to his one thousand. He should have celebrated. He should have pinned a shiny medal on his chest. He should have given him honor and glory, but he resented it. Because David was a thousand times better than Saul was on his best day by any measure. Except dunking a basketball. That's the only thing that Saul could do better than David because Saul was taller from the shoulders up than anyone else in Israel. 
But when it came to character, when it came to conduct, when it came to military prowess, David could whip Saul any day. But he should have been thankful that he had that man working for him. David was the most loyal and committed servant a man could ever have. But it was envy. And he tried to kill David numerous times. Why would you want to kill your right-hand man that can do more for you than any ten? Because of envy. It's a horrible thing. Why did the Jews kill the Lord Jesus Christ? Out of envy. Because men followed him. Why did they try to kill the Apostle Paul? Out of envy. Because when Paul preached, there were Gentiles being converted to Paul's modified Judaism. Okay, to the God of Israel and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hated Paul for that. They hadn't been successful with their evangelistic efforts and Paul was more. So they hated him. The Bible tells us that. When they saw the number of Gentiles that wanted to hear Paul's gospel, they envied him for it. It's a terrible thing. It drives men to kill. In the Bible, we're guilty of it. We envy others. We resent others. And what they have by nature. By nature, I hope that as a child of God, we don't. I hope that we love to praise others and commend others for the things that they do better than we do. And for the things God has blessed them with better than we have. We should praise them. We should be thankful that we're around them. We should be thankful that we might be able to live a little off their largesse and God's blessing upon them. We move to murder. Literally and specifically, murder means in this list the taking of a physical life of another person for the wrong reason. This does not mean capital punishment by a government. Here again we go in hermeneutics. When the Bible says thou shalt not kill, that doesn't mean government can't kill somebody in a gas chamber or in in an electric chair when they have committed the crime of murder. Thou shalt not kill is you killing someone else without a cause. The Bible still justifies governments killing men, taking their lives, putting murderers to death by capital punishment. The Apostle Paul, when he was on trial, said, If I have done anything worthy of death, I am not afraid to die. He didn't say, if I have done anything worthy of death, I hope you remember that the God of the heaven doesn't allow you to kill. He knew that the God of heaven allowed that. So just keep that straight when it says murder. We're talking about you taking a life privately for personal reasons that can't be justified. We read of Cain killing Abel. We read about the apostles being killed by Herod and others. The history of the world is full of murder. Single cases of it. Genocide, when thousands and millions of people are wiped out. Abortion of millions of babies. Murder everywhere. When you look at this list, don't think of it as being some obscure, rare crime. It's everywhere. Most nations, for the greater part of world history, have punished murderers, though, with the loss of their lives. Because they understood that those who commit such things are worthy of death. But brethren, let's take this, let's get this a little closer to home in case you're going to walk out and say, I'm only guilty of 22. I'm really a pretty good guy. I've never killed anyone. Well, that's why we have Matthew chapter 5 that says, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, if you call your brother a fool without a justifiable cause, you are guilty of killing. So I believe that the word murder here, it gets us all. And we hear the handcuffs and the door slam. We're waiting for the executioner to pull the lever on a few thousand volts to electrify us. Except the Lord isn't quite as easy. Because it's an eternity in hell for those who commit these sins. And we, we know that, and yet we still commit them. We shouldn't be angry with our brother without a cause. 
If you've got a cause against your brother, the Lord's got 10,000 against you for him to be angry against you. You're such a hypocrite, and there's so much sin in your life while you're so busy trying to point it out in others' lives without a justifiable cause. Lord, have mercy upon us. The human race is condemned. There's been genocide. You can read about murder. Every year they publish the statistics. You know, how many hundreds were killed in Detroit, Michigan during the year, the year 2009, how many murders took place. They never even list all the abortions that took place. They list the murders, and there's hundreds of them. Chicago has hundreds of them, even in our nation. Because God's given them over to a reprobate mind. Why would you ever take the life? You can't ever repay that. There's no amount of compensation you can give their family to make up for the taking of a life. It's horrible. When my children started to drive, and thank you, Lord, for your mercy, I told them very plainly, and I mean every bit of this, and if this is too hard for you, I'm sorry. I guess I'm letting a little bit of my liberty out in the pulpit when it comes to my children driving. If you want to drive like a fool and kill yourself, that is fine. It will not cost your mom and me very much to get you in the ground, and the world will be a better place because a person that's driving a deadly weapon foolishly deserves to be in the ground. And that's what I would tell them in all loving kindness. But if you go out there and kill someone else in that vehicle of yours, there is no mercy, there is no forgiveness. How will we ever replace that lost life because you are driving a deadly weapon foolishly? When you drive a deadly weapon foolishly, you are playing with murder. You young little idiots, you don't know how to drive. If we could buy... Experience, driving experience for you, forgive me for calling you that. But when we see you at the wheel and your foot on the accelerator, that is what we think. You do not have the experience to combine an accelerator with braking distances and inertia and reaction times. You think you've got great reaction times, but experience makes... If you're able to slap my hand a little faster than I can slap your hand, that doesn't mean that your reactions are going to help you in an automobile because I have 35 years of driving experience that helps guide my reactions so that they start while you're still yakking. You know, you're trying to text, talk on another cell phone, and drive. I don't do that because I know better. I don't like the sound of crunching metal and my head being jerked around or the shiny red lights. Murder! Let's drive carefully, young people. You are dealing with a deadly weapon. In the Bible, it was very simple. Your deadly weapon is an ox that was wont to gore. They didn't have Fords and Chevys in the book of, in the books of Moses, but they have had oxen that were wont to gore or Oxen that in the past had shown a propensity or a desire to want to gore people. And once they knew that an ox had that kind of a temperament, that it was dangerous, if it got out and it gored a man, you got killed for it. So when you're driving a car, and we all know that cars are wont to kill. Cars are deadly. So drive carefully. I just want to make sure that you don't just breeze over this list and say, well, I've never killed anybody. If you've been angry with your brother without a cause, or excessively so, or called names without a cause, a righteous cause, not your cause, God's cause, then you're guilty of murder. Debate. Murder, debate. 
Stephen Eastland Jr., are you taking debate right now? You are. Matthew Eastland, did you participate in debate? Is that the debate that's under consideration here that you two are doing something wrong? No. Debate's a great exercise. You know, the three R's will leave you relatively retarded. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. See, there's about seven of them. And when you have a full education, you get all seven instead of just three. And one of the four that's missing is called rhetoric. And it's the ability to reason and think in writing or speech to be able to communicate ideas and persuade men and defend yourself against those who are attacking your position. It's called rhetoric. You know, and of course there's religion. And there's other R's, but I don't want to get down that rabbit trail too far before I can get myself back. The three little R's are not quite enough. But rhetoric isn't wrong. The Apostle Paul used it frequently, didn't he? Can't we turn to Acts chapter 17 right now and find out that he would take the Word of God and open and allege? Open and allege. That's argument in court. That's debating. He would open with discussions. He would debate the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ against the Jews and against the Gentiles. That is not wrong. Well, Brother Crosby, what is wrong about debate? This is foolish arguing for the sake of pride or rebellion against authority of God or men. This is where the Bible says that ministers aren't supposed to waste their time with the foolish and unlearned questions of people who just want to question and argue and strive about words to no profit. Those are words that the New Testament uses. This is children wanting to argue with their parents. This is a wife wanting to argue with her husband. This is an employee wanting to argue with an employer. When the Bible says that you are not to answer again to your employer, it certainly includes no debate. Titus 2.9 exhort servants to be obedient or well-pleasing to their masters in all things, not answering again. But when you start answering again and then start giving reasons as to why you're answering again and giving excuses as to why you don't want to do it the way he's just told you to do it, you're debating. When your parents tell you to do something, well, why do I have to do that? You're starting a debate. That's right. Listen, you're not intelligent enough for them to even tell you why. Right. Are you kidding me? They don't even know how to get that low. They're trying to help you. Debate. You say, I didn't, you know, you're slowing us down enough. I didn't even know that word was in here. What in the world is it talking about? Right. Debate is worthy of death? I thought you might ask. I was hoping you would. Yep. Listen, if you roll your eyes at your parents, is it worthy of death? Yep. How about wanting to argue with them? Help me out. Just nod your head and say, I understand. Oh, let me help you out a little bit more. Do you think that Pharaoh was used to people in his court entering into debate with them? When Nehemiah, when Nehemiah tells us that he was the king's cupbearer, the king Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire, and that he had never before entered the king's court without a big smile on his face for the privilege of serving that king, because he understood that it meant... He'd have his head cut off if he wasn't happy for the privilege of serving the king Ahasuerus. Do you think that he could have engaged in a debate with him? Nehemiah, did you bring me my Cabernet? Oh, I brought you some white Zinfandel. It's sweeter, O oh, king. You'll like, I want Cabernet. No, it's not as good for you. 
It has too many calories. Ever hear a wife talk this way? We owned a store just so that we could hear this every day. No, you can't have a cookie. Don't you know that the doctor told you you had high cholesterol three years ago? You can't have a cookie. But I want a cookie. Shut up. Basically. Debate. Debate. It's it. I don't. Look at that word. Debate. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar engaged in debate very often with those that worked for him? Okay, enough said. Do you know we're dealing with someone greater than Nebuchadnezzar? And when he gives authority to men, five spheres, parents, husbands, masters, magistrates, pastors, he is not looking for them to be argued with foolishly, unlearned, rebelliously. He will punish it severely. Was Was there ever an argument, a debate with Moses? His name was Korah. Did he debate with Moses that Moses was taking too much on himself? Did the Lord do a new thing in the earth? Opened it up and swallowed him and everything that appertained to those wicked men that had stood up against him. Debate. Let's keep moving. Deceit. You know what deceit is? It's lying. Especially when a witness. It's seriously condemned by God in both testaments. When it's done in court, what's it called? Perjury. Has it been punished severely in the past when you perjure yourself? You're trying to get someone else convicted of a crime and you lie in order to accomplish it? Or you try to defend somebody who has committed a crime and you perjure yourself in court? It was punished severely in the Bible. God's law punished perjurers with the same punishment that was at stake in the trial. If it was a murder trial and you lied under oath, your life was taken. Now that would help you tell the truth in court, wouldn't it? But you say to me, God wouldn't uh, it's, it's this 30-second verse that's bothering me. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Surely, lying isn't worthy of death. It's just telling a lie. Ask Ananias and Sapphira what they think. Do they have an opinion on the matter? They would say that lying is sufficient for death. Because the Lord struck them both dead in the church of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Lying is terrible. When I read in the Bible, Revelation 21 and verse 8, and it describes who is in the the lake of fire in the second death, it says, all blank shall have their part in the lake of fire. All liars. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 15, when it says, outside the city are those that make a lie. Deceit. Have you ever lied to your parents? Ever lied to a school teacher? Ever lied to anybody? (coughs) You're worthy of death. Did you ever lie to anybody after you knew that lying was bad? Thank you. Yes. Malignity. Let's keep moving, brethren. Malignity. We're not talking about whether it's benign or malignant, except it's, it's kind of fitting. When, you've got, when you're guilty of malignity, you have a malignant spirit. You have a spirit that is wicked, evil, hateful toward someone else. Malignity means wicked and deep-rooted ill will or hatred. Now I want to stop right here. I know what you're thinking. You're, you're hitting several terms that sound alike, like maliciousness and malignity. Yes. And I, what this turns us back to is the greatest measure of a child of God, where we can differ ourselves from our past life and from the rest of the world, is to love one another by the definition of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You bet there's some overlap and repetition, because the greatest crime that we commit against each other, you know, the first part of this chapter, or verses 18 through 28, 
was our crime against God. We changed the truth of God into a lie. We worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. But right now, most of these are directed toward our fellow man, aren't they? Have you noticed that? In the Ten Commandments, the first four toward God, the, 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 from five through ten, the last six are toward our fellow man. These are toward our fellow man. Charity is the bond of perfectness. Charity is the bond of perfectness. It'll keep you from all of these things if you love other people and want to help them and serve them and make them better in their lives to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Malignity. Compare the Bible terms have maliciousness, hatred, grudge, envy, despiteful. Holding bitterness or grudges against another is malignity. Saul had malignity toward David. It ate Saul from the inside to have David around. When would Saul get the urge to kill David? When David was playing his harp to help Saul. Here is a mighty warrior playing his harp for the king. And the king would just be eaten up with the fact that the nation loved David far more than Saul. They loved David far more than Saul for very good reasons. And it was very true that they did. But so what? He should have been thankful that the man worked for him and wasn't trying to overthrow his government. But he would pick up that javelin while David's playing his harp and try to pin him to the wall with it. Malignity. Whisperers. The last word in verse 29. Whisperers. This doesn't mean just speaking with voice words, just a whisper without the full vocal cords being involved. This is whispering in the Bible sense of the word. When someone else is not around and you insinuate and you tell stories about another person to detract from their character and their reputation to another person, God hates this crime. You are raping another person's reputation. You are raping another person's character. Whispering. The action of saying or reporting something quietly or secretly. Suggestion or insinuation. Faint mention or rumor. Secret slander or detraction or backbiting. That's what the Oxford English Dictionary says. The Bible terms that are compared are slander, tail-bearing, backbiting. Listen, the world gets alarmed and angry about rape. But rape is the violation of a person's body. You can get over it. I'm not making light of it. The Lord had a good way of dealing with it. Rapists in the Bible never did it the second time. Can you get that? And they didn't believe in prisons. Can you get it now? Rape is the violation of a body. A mature person can get over it. I'm not making light of it. But whispering and backbiting and slander is the rape of character. How do you get over it when your reputation has been raped by someone? Your reputation is not altered by the rape of your body. Your character is not altered by the rape of your body. I'm only making this comparison because the world gets all excited and gets all alarmed about physical rape. But what about the rape of character and reputation is done by whispering, backbiting, slander, and tailbearing? Right. And we rape is taking sexual intimacy, sexual pleasure, or sexual privileges with another person against their will. Whispering, tailbearing, and backbiting and slander is taking character. And reputation from a person against their will. That's why it's called backbiting. Because you do it behind their back. You're not man enough to do it to their face. So you do it behind their back. It's in the word of God. 
We've got them twice here. Look at the last word of 29, the first word of 30. Whispering. Backbiters. God hates this crime. He understands its wickedness. That's why when you call a person a name that you can't justify by God's standard, you're guilty of the sixth commandment. Matthew chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. He made up this list. I did not make it up. We are subject to this list. I have to preach it. You have to hear it. We all have to obey it. We all realize that we're dead before the God of heaven. We're condemned to death. But we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. He never whispered about anyone. He never maligned anyone. That would be malignity, wouldn't it? Okay, good. You remember that word. He never maligned anyone by saying anything about them behind their back. He never whispered. He never insinuated about somebody being guilty of some terrible crime or or they're just not a very good person because they're doing this or that. Jesus didn't do it, and we have His perfect righteousness legally. But as Christians, we should hate these sins in this list, including these two. Whisperers. Backbiters. Let's be back kissers, brethren. Anyone you can bite in the back, I can kiss him in return for good. And that's what you ought to do. As the north wind drives away rain, so an angry countenance drives away a backbiting tongue. When someone starts biting somebody, when they're not around, and saying things that detract from their character, tear into them. Right. I'll defend you 100%. We'll throw them out of this church. It sows discord among brethren. It's wrong. It's devilish. It's from beneath. The person that's doing it, I will help you identify the ten crimes in their life worse than the person they're picking on. Especially the one they're guilty of. Backbiters are committing a crime greater than anything they're accusing the other person of. Because whatever the person is doing is not character rape. It's not reputation rape. This is the word of the Lord. It's so easy to be guilty of it. Let's be back kissers. Let's go around and tell about all the good things that people do. We're all sinners. If we want to sit around and pick on faults, we'll find them on everyone. Let's, let's do some back kissing. God help us. Haters of God. You can't imagine anyone hating God? Just interview a person who's lost a close relative. They can get there, can't they? Some of you... Well, uh, there's an esteemed doctor in this town. Ooh, I shouldn't have said his office. Anyway, you know, even doctors can lose a relative. And you ought, to meet some, you ought to meet a woman who's lost a child. And resenting God for it. Haters of God. If you had a wife or you had a husband and that spouse died, the Lord loaned you that spouse and the Lord took him back. Your attitude should only be one. There's only one attitude to have. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think Job had seven sons and three daughters. Some big family like that. And he said the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away when he lost all of them. And then he worshipped the Lord. And he didn't charge God foolishly in anything. If you don't think that anybody can hate God, you just need to get around a little bit more and ask a few questions. Let's get closer to home, though. If you love me, keep my commandments. He that keepeth my commandments, he it is that loveth me. John 14, 15. John 14, 21. So what are you doing when you uh, don't keep his commandments? Uh, you're hating him. When you, are, when you befriend the world and get all excited about what the world's doing out there, their lifestyle, their thought processes, their things, when you get excited about them, you are a hater of God. You are the enemy of God because you are flirting with his archenemy. James 4.4. 4. 
It's called spiritual adultery. You're in bed with his arch enemy. You are his bride. You are his virgin bride. He made you a virgin. He made you a chaste virgin by the Lord Jesus Christ perfecting everything about you so that you are one beautiful, glorious, chaste virgin. Legally, he's made you that way. But when you befriend the world, it's as if you were in bed with his arch enemy, the devil himself. That's why they're called it's called adulterers and adulteresses in James 4.4. 4. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. You're a hater of God. You fall into this category right here. More could be said. Help me. Despiteful is next. Despiteful. Contemptuous. Insulting. Cruel. Fierce. Malignant. Malicious. You say, we've, if those are its synonyms, then we've had this three times. I know. I understand. It's the attitude you have toward other people. Is it gentle, kind, forgiving, loving, serving? Or is it envious, hostile, negative, critical? You want to be critical? I can't wait for you to meet God. It's easy to find criti- you know, critical people. They have so few friends. They have so little left of a family because they've wanted to be critical. So you love being critical? Precious. Wait till the Lord criticizes you. He's already preparing his little dossier on you. I would suggest that you quit being critical, despiteful, contemptuous, insulting of other people or of authority. The children of God are to be gentle, tender-hearted, kind, loving. Look at how many of these crimes deal with our attitude toward our fellows, our brethren, those around us. Proud. Having or cherishing a high or lofty opinion of yourself. This is a sin that cost the devil his office. This is what brought the devil down out of his lofty position before God. Pride. I've preached entire sermons on pride and pride again several years ago that you're able to look at. How well, how do you know, you want to know if you're proud or not? How well do you take correction? If you take correction and you can, you can easily say, I've done that, I'm wrong, you're right, I'm not going to do it anymore. That's not a proud person. That's humility. That's how you can measure it. How well do you say you're sorry for any wrong you've done? Are you able to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I'm wrong, that was stupid, wicked, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Are you able to do that? Are you able to choke out all those words? Are you able to do it easily? Are you able to think about it yourself? Or does somebody have to come and work you over for a few days or hours or weeks before you're able to say you're sorry? That shows your degree of pride. How willing are you to sacrifice your time, plan, schedule, or finances for someone else? Proud. And then pride results in talking about yourself. Boasters is next in the list in verse 30. Boasters. What did God do to Herod in his pride when he made a speech in the last few verses of Acts chapter 12? And they said, it's the voice of a God. As they tried to flatter Herod. He, he didn't give God the glory, so he died and was eaten of worms. Who know that crime is worthy of death. God isn't unfair. Cruel and unusual punishment? God hardly knows about it. Pride, boasters, the athletes, I want to thank here's how they thank the Lord. I want to thank God for making me so special. You know, where's the humility in that? Well, they mentioned God. Well, good. So does the Pope. 
You are nothing and you have nothing that God hasn't given you. So the Lord reasons this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Why do you glory about what you have or what you are since you received it from me as a gift? Why are you glorying in it? You should be glorying in me for giving it to you. Boasters. Inventors of evil things. Is in verse 30. Inventors of evil things. You know what an inventor is, but these inventors invent evil things. Can you think of any in the Bible? Did, did men do a whole lot of inventing right here by inventing a new religion where they worshipped images and the creature instead of the creator? Is there a whole bunch of invention of evil things here? Images made like unto birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things? Yes. Inventors of evil things. Can I help you out a little bit more? Did they ever invent a golden calf in the Bible? Did they ever invent child sacrifice in the Bible? They did. Did they ever invent religious mutilation? Has anybody ever cut themselves and bled in the name of religion? You know, I've got an email recently, a couple of times. Please pray for me in the name of Jesus as I press this sharp object into my body. In the hope that my blood will bring the Lord Jesus Christ to help me. Is that sick? That's an invention of evil things. Let's keep going. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, when Solomon gets to the subject of women, he says that the Lord made man upright, but he has sought out many inventions. What was the one that he was guilty of? Polygamy. Because God made Eve for Adam. God didn't make Eve, Rose, Sally, and Brenda. He made Eve. And so that's an invention in the marriage area of life. Marrying outside the Lord is an invention. Divorce is an invention. Fornication is an invention. Bestiality, pornography, defrauding, fantasies, nightclubs, chat rooms, incest, pedophilia, necromania, inventors of evil things. The world's filled with it. Consider further. Inflation is how to steal, and only one person in 10,000 can figure it out. Inflation, gas chambers, starvation, torture, child rights, self-love, national debts, no-fault divorce, idolatry, pagan religions, and holy books like the Book of Mormon. Inventors of evil things. Lord, save us. Disobedient to parents. Have I said enough on that one? I hope I got my point across in the first service. Given the time, I'm going to trust that I did. But it's rampant everywhere. It's rampant even among Christians, according to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. One of the character traits of the perilous times of the last days is that Christians would allow disobedience to parents. It was worthy of death. Verse 31, without understanding. God is a God of knowledge, and he expects you to make decisions and do what you do based on knowledge. Not on hearsay, not on feelings, not on testimonials, not on garbage information, on real information. God expects you to be with understanding. The first level of understanding that you can sin against is the understanding in context. That God has revealed that he exists. And so you can sin against that. But we don't want to limit it to that because that would look like Paul's being redundant in a foolish way. Remember, Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say, That which may be known of God 
was clearly manifest in them. God hath showed it to them. The things are understood. These things about God are understood, but the things are made. I want the word understood. There's an understanding in context that when you commit idolatry, you are operating without understanding. Don't you understand that, that stupid statute, that stone statute, that wood statute that you're praying to can't help you? That's being without understanding. But there's a whole lot more said in the Bible. God expects you to be more than a fool. A fool believes every word. But a prudent man looks well to his going. <clears throat> Do you know how many verses there are in Proverbs that say a prudent man deals with knowledge? Testimonials are not knowledge. They're not worth anything. Nothing. It doesn't matter how many you mount. The Mormons have millions. The little emails that I get in my inbox called spam have thousands. You deal with knowledge. Without understanding is to be impulsive, heady, stubborn, rebellious, impetuous, personal. I'm going to go do it my way. That's to be without understanding, and the Bible condemns it. The Lord expects us to, the prudent man foresees the evil, and he hides himself. He's careful, he's cautious, he's critical, he's negative, he's pessimistic, he's not optimistic, foolish, plowing ahead, doing his thing based on some frivolous piece of information. There's no way you're ever going to get stuck in a Ponzi scheme if you can remember one rule. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Anything that's paying more than 4% right now is pretending to be a free lunch. And when something wants to pay 40%, you should understand by a factor of 10, it's a lie. Without understanding. The Lord expects us to be wise men. Wise men operate with knowledge. They're careful. They'll question things. I want to establish this on the best grounds possible, rather than bowling ahead foolishly based on inadequate information, inadequate proving, inadequate testing. God expects us to be wise with all those things. Men stifle their consciences, put off inquiry, ignore consequences just because they want to do it their way. Forwarding hoax mails. Listen, when you get something in your inbox, that doesn't mean it's true. Nine times out of ten, if somebody forwarded you something, it's not true. I love www.snopes.com. Snopes is, is cool. It's a website dedicated to taking all the faults and hoaxes that have been perpetuated over the last ten years in emails and telling you about them. If you go to the www.snopes.com website, it's going to have an entry box, and you can type in a couple words from the email that you just got, and they're going to have that email from seven years ago that other idiots have been sending it around for seven years, and it slows us down. I did it one time to this church. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I sent you... A pile. <laughs> Let me just I, just... I sent you a pile about the soldiers that guard the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington. I had them living better than the Apostle Paul. I had them reading the Bible more than Ezra, a scribe, ready in the law of God, ever thought of reading it. Was it you, Rhonda? Who, was it you that called my hand? I, see, I remember that you called my hand on it. I, I had my hand caught... Oh, it was in the cookie jar. It was in the cookie jar of operating without understanding. I just saw something that sounded so good, I wanted to share it with all of you. It sounded so good. Yeah, too good to be true because it wasn't true. 
Don't send that garbage around. Do you know how big your mind is to get one of those emails and not check it out before you blow it on to another hundred people? America is so gullible. And I did it. How about marrying for looks? Is that without understanding? Where where do you want to? We could go all over the place with this one. Covenant breakers. Brethren, let's keep every contract we ever enter into, whether it's verbal or written. Why have mortgage papers grown from two to three pages to over a hundred? Who signed the last mortgage in this place? Uh, Was it two pages? Was it a half inch? It was 250. I need to correct my outline. You you just messed me up. My outline only says a hundred. I knew it was getting bad, but it's accelerating. Do you know why they have to do that? Because nobody keeps their word anymore. So they got to get you by every single way that they possibly can so that you can't go to court and get out of your mortgage. 250 pages. Is making a loan today about ridiculous in the amount of paperwork you've got to go through, Eric? Ridiculous. You know, in the old days, it was this thing. Do you know what? Because when I shook that and looked you in the eye, you knew that I was going to pay. And they weren't all Christians that operated that way. There was within man the willingness to do that, but we have a government that doesn't keep its up. It's just easy to do that in our country. Covenant breakers. Let's always keep our covenants. You know, why are there divorces? That's a covenant. It's called the covenant of marriage. You promised. And you were so eager to get at that woman, and you were so eager to get at that man, you, you would have swore everything away. And all they all you always said was live with them and love them for as long as you till death do us part. And then you go break it off into a divorce. It's we can't be like that. The Lord hates it. Those such crimes are worthy of death without natural affection. Of course there's sodomy. That is not natural affection because verses twenty four through twenty seven said it was not. But there's other things that are contrary to nature. Did you know that the Bible teaches us tells us the Bible tells us nature teaches us that you ought to desire the opposite sex. For sexual pleasure in marriage. Two, it tells us that long hair in a woman is a glory, right. and, sh- and long hair in a man is a shame. Right. And it tells us that if you don't take care of your relatives, if you don't take care of your parents when they're aged and can't help themselves, if you don't do it, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. Now I want you to think about that because I've made, it, I've made an assertion today that I've asked you to accept and believe. And that is that the inconvenient things in these last few verses are something that God has turned men over to, but that men have a natural restraint in them by a little candle of the Lord. And it's only when God turns men over do they do all these things with abandon. Because notice what the text says. You have denied the faith and are worse than an infidel. What is an infidel? A person that doesn't believe in the existence of God. How are you worse than them? Because they take care of their relatives. Why do they take care of their relatives? By the assumption God's making right here that even the natural man has some restraint put up that his parents deserve a little bit of kindness for what the parents have done toward him when he was younger. Are you you with me on that? Nature teaches us that. Without natural affection. So if you don't take care of your parents without natural affection, you abort your baby. Do you know what the Bible says about the, the God made a creature that steps on its young and kills them? What is the name of that creature? Ostrich. Ostrich. What does the Lord say about that creature? That he made it without wisdom. Haven't you looked at those ugly things? That little head. It isn't room for a brain. 
And the, and the Lord, the Lord told, the Lord, Karen, I'm, Karen, in the Bible, if you go to the book of Job, the, Job, the Lord tells us to glory in the horse, because the horse is a pretty neat thing. But he says, look at the ostrich. I didn't give it any wisdom. Look at that little head. You know, it, it, it lays its eggs and steps on them. It has no regard for its young. And then it talks about humans not having any regard for their young, except mothers in our country go and kill their babies intentionally and maliciously, don't they? And the Lord compares them to that. This is without natural affection, because the natural affection for that baby in the womb is a very strong bond until somebody has been rewired, until God has given them over to a reprobate mind. Then they can spread their legs and let some doctor put a suction wand in there and rip that little child apart limb by limb. Are they worthy of death? Without natural affection. Implacable. Do you know what it is to be implacable? You can't be pleased no matter what anybody does. The southern expression is, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You can't do anything to please these kind of people. Implacable. This is a proud and stubborn person that won't be appeased or satisfied no matter what you do. Men by nature are not gracious, except for selfish ends. But God has called us to be gracious. This is the spouse that refuses to be happy in a marriage, no matter what the other person does, because I've just given up. I don't love them anymore. I've just given up. No matter what that spouse does, there is no reconciliation. God hates that. That is implacability. That's what the word means. Make sure that you're placable. That somebody can change their behavior towards you and you'll change toward them. You're, you're ready to forgive. You're ready to love again. You're ready to do whatever they would like to do with you. Unmerciful. When you have somebody under your thumb, the best thing you can do many times, not always, is to lift that thumb off and let them free. Mercy. Mercy. The Lord shows it to us all the time. Amen. You know, He's forgiven us 10,000 talents and we hold somebody responsible for a hundred pence. It's not fair, Lord, have mercy upon us. These are the crimes. Let's not be guilty of them. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, the Lord has shown all men, all Gentiles, sufficient knowledge inside, outside, conscience, creation, providence, that they know the judgment of God is is death for committing these sins. Who knowing the judgment of God, they have the knowledge that there's a God with eternal power and a Godhead, And he judges these kind of crimes with death. Not only do the same crimes, but they take pleasure in them that do them. We're going to get to more about the conscience in the second chapter. But all you have to do is look throughout the history of the world and see that there have been restraints that men have put up without knowledge of the Word of God on most or all of these points. Do you think that families in the past allowed their children to smart off to parents the way that our generation does? You are wrong, wrong, wrong. They would have backhanded you right in smack in your face in one instant for the stupid things that are said by children today. They'd have knocked you right to the floor. Did your gentle father ever do that to a brother of yours that... Just one generation. I love them for it. Are worthy of death. You can go in the Bible and find out that the Roman government had laws established about death. You know what? Agrippa, Festus, others got together when Paul was on trial and they said, 
They went aside and accounted among themselves, this man, this man hasn't done anything worthy of bonds or of death. Where did they get that kind of reasoning from? Because they read the Bible? Yep. Not, not a chance. Where did they get that from? The restraint that God had put inside them. They knew this man is hated by these Jews because he has some different religious ideas. He hasn't done anything worthy of bonds or of death. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have set him free right now. It's, it's wonderful reasoning to see it in the Bible, to understand Romans 1.32. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Brethren, I want you to walk out of here remembering this, that Romans 1.32 condemns us because not only do we do these things knowing that God hates them and that we're worthy of death for committing them, we choose friends from those that do these things, and we watch television and other forms of the media, Internet, movies, books, mags, that present people who are doing these sins and glorify them. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, this is the indictment against the human race, but have pleasure in them that do them. Our nation gets its pleasure from watching sin of these 23 varieties. Think about it. Take the most popular movie of any year and measure it by these 23 crimes. They exalt rebellion against the word of God. And if you watch it and take pleasure in someone else doing it, God thinks it's just the same as you doing it. If you have a friend that does these kind of things, God considers it the same kind of a crime as you doing it yourself. Therefore, we are responsible not only to avoid these 23 things, to avoid people that do these 23 things, and to avoid entertainment that glorifies these 23 things. Brethren, you should, have, you should love the Lord Jesus Christ. Being measured by all 23 categories of righteousness and sin, he never sinned in any one of these areas. His perfect righteousness is ours by the electing choice of God. He died on the cross, and the death on the cross was as terrible as it was because your 23 crimes from this list put him there. We have a great Savior. We should examine ourselves, however. And look at these, this list of 23 and make sure that we hate these things, we don't do these things, we don't hang around with those who do these things, and we don't get our entertainment from these things. Lord, help us. This is the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 1. The human race is condemned. There is a great Savior for the elect. Perfect in righteousness applied to our account. Perfect in a substitutionary death, paying for every one of our sins. We stand before him, perfectly holy and righteous, free from all this guilt and condemnation. He's going to get to that in the 21st verse of the third chapter. But till then, we want to get some practical blessing out of this in examining ourselves. Where are you weak in that list of 23? Hate it. Change it. Repent of it. And be like David in Psalm 101 and get those people out of your life. Don't set any wicked thing before your eyes. Hate the work of them that turn aside. Don't let it cleave to you. Make the faithful of, of the land those that dwell with you. Let them be your employees. Hang around them. Let's promote righteousness in a band of faithful saints that love the Lord Jesus Christ, love his word, keep the way of God, and will not compromise with the world. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.